invite you to turn with me in your Bible this morning to the book of Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 10. We're going to begin by reading the first, the last few verses of chapter 9, just to remind you where we are in the book of Leviticus. Um, Moses in chapter 8 uh, ordained and installed Aaron to be the high priest and his, two, um, his, his sons to be, uh, serve as priests as well with Aaron. Aaron was the high priest and his sons are also made to be priests. In chapter 9, we have um, the first official acts of Aaron and his sons as they now, as the priests of God, um, begin offering sacrifices and God blesses that richly. And so we'll read that in verse, beginning of verse 22 of chapter 9, the blessing of God, the evidence that God uh, was pleased and, and that uh, God's priests were serving uh, in a way that was effective for the people. Let's begin uh, verse 22 of chapter 9, and then we'll read through the entirety of chapter 10. Then Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them. And he came down from offering the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting, and when they came out, they blessed the people, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. Chapter 10. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said, among those who are near me I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. And Moses called Mishael and Elzaphan, the sons of Uziel, the uncle of Aaron, and said to them, Come near, carry your brothers away from the front of the sanctuary and out of the camp. And so they came near and carried them in their coats out of the camp, as Moses had said. And Moses said to Aaron, Eleazar, and Ithamar, his sons, Do not let the hair of your heads hang loose, Do not tear your clothes, lest you die, and wrath come upon all the congregation. But let your brothers, the whole house of Israel, bewail the burning that the Lord has kindled. And do not go outside the entrance of the tent of meeting, lest you die, for the anointing oil of the Lord is upon you. And they did according to the words of Moses. And the Lord spoke to Aaron, saying, Drink no wine or strong drink, you or your sons with you, when you go into the tent of meeting, lest you die. It shall be a statue forever throughout your generations. You are to distinguish between the holy and the common, between the clean, the unclean, and the clean. And you are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. Moses spoke to Aaron and Eleazar and Ithamar, his surviving sons, Take the grain offering that is left of the Lord's food offering and eat it unleavened beside the altar, for it is most holy. You shall eat it in a holy place, Because it is your due and your sons' due from the Lord's offerings, for so I am commanded. But the breast that is waved and the thigh that is contributed, you shall eat in a clean place, you and your sons and your daughters with you, for they are given as your due and your sons' due from the sacrifice of the peace offering of the people of Israel. 
the thigh that is contributed and the breast that is waved, they shall bring with the food offerings of the fat pieces to wave for a wave offering before the Lord, and it shall be yours and your sons with you as a due forever as the Lord has commanded. Now Moses diligently inquired about the goat of the sin offering, and behold, it was burned up. And he was angry with Eleazar and Ithamar, the surviving sons of Aaron, saying, Why have you not eaten the sin offering in the place of the sanctuary, since it is a thing most holy, and has been given to you that you may bear the iniquity of the congregation to make atonement for them before the Lord? Behold, its blood was not brought into the inner part of the sanctuary. You certainly ought to have eaten it in the sanctuary as I commanded. And Aaron said to Moses, Behold, today, today they have offered their sin offering and their burnt offering before the Lord, and yet such things as these have happened to me. If I had eaten the sin offering today, would the Lord have approved? And when Moses heard that, he approved. Let's ask the Lord to bless. Our God in heaven, this morning you remind us of what you're like. And I pray, O oh God, that you, have, you would give us ears to hear, that we would be awake to the reality of God, and that by your Spirit, Lord, we would be uh, transformed as your people and renewed in our um, confidence in the gospel and the sense of our calling to live in this world as those who speak truth and live in truth concerning the reality of God. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> One of the uh, a helpful analogy to talk about what is it uh, what, what happens to you when you become a Christian? A helpful way of talking about that is to talk about about it in terms of waking up. Uh, the fact is that when uh, we are uh, outside of Christ, when we are living in unbelief, we are sleepwalking. Uh, when people sleepwalk, maybe some of you have experienced this. When people sleepwalk, uh, it's well, it's a very strange thing. They move about and they uh, they can talk. Their their eyes are open. Uh, sleepwalkers have been known to drive a car, uh, to uh, go out to a restaurant, to take a swim, uh, all while fast asleep. Uh, they're moving, they're acting, they, they're maybe talking, but they're not, really, they're not really awake to their environment. They're not really engaged with the reality of their surroundings. Well, spiritual sleepwalking is very much like that. Uh, if you're spiritually sleepwalking, you're living in God's world and you, uh, you exist by God's sustaining power and you receive daily blessings from God's hand. Uh, God is the overwhelming reality in which you live and yet you're asleep to it. You're not awake. You're not engaged to the reality of God. All of creation is singing God's praise. I hope you heard it this morning just coming to church and seeing the beautiful sunshine and, and the wonderful um, rain-refreshed earth. It's all singing God's praise, but if you're spiritually sleepwalking, can't hear it. Nation, uh, nature is testifying to God's power and God's goodness, His presence, but if you're sleepwalking, you can't see it. Your own conscience is talking to you about the reality of a God uh, to whom you owe worship and before whom you will give an account. But if you're sleepwalking spiritually, you're just dead to it. You don't respond to it. You're not engaged with the reality of God. Well, obviously, sleepwalking can be dangerous. Um, one young man I was reading this week uh, uh, dreamed that he was jumping out of a window, except that he wasn't really dreaming. He was sleepwalking. And so he woke up with a broken arm and broken leg. A spiritual sleepwalking is dangerous. And that's what we see in our text this morning. 
Nadab and Abihu were just doing their thing, but they were not awake to, aware of, the actual reality of a holy God, and it cost them their life. To understand the tragedy of chapter 10, we really need to understand the triumph of chapter 9. There we read of Aaron and his sons beginning their priestly ministry. They've been ordained and installed. And um, that was uh, happened in chapter 8. Now in chapter 9, they're offering their first sacrifices. There's a large crowd of people that have been gathered to watch uh, Aaron and his sons. They're robed in their beautiful priestly clothing. Uh, and they go about the ministry as God has commanded. They carefully kill the animals. They make the sacrifices. And the ministry is met with great success. God is present. The glory of the Lord is revealed. Fire comes from heaven as evidence of God's acceptance of the sacrifices. And Aaron and Moses give the blessing to God's people. The chasm of sin has been crossed. God and Israel can now live by the way that God has opened through the sacrifices and the priesthood. And so it's a wonderful beginning. It's a wonderful start. But the triumph is quickly overshadowed by tragedy. The incident of chapter 10 happened either the same day or the very next day following the ordination and the first sacrifices. And so this morning, we're going to spend most of our time in the first part of the chapter. In fact, we're not going to get to the latter part of the chapter at all. I encourage you to read that. Um, But we're going to look at the event itself and then the explanation for the event. The event and the explanation. So in verses 1 and 2, we read of Nadab and Abihu, fresh from their, uh, the triumph of their first official acts as priests, robed in their beautiful clothes, um, they make a fateful decision. We're told that they take their censers, a metal dish where you would put hot coals, and they uh, then put incense on those coals as an act of worship. Now this is a priestly act. Uh, in Exodus chapter 30, we, we see that God uh, commanded, required the burning of incense on the altar of incense. So what was the problem? Why did this act result in immediate and fatal consequences? The text does not tell us specifically, but it tells us enough. We read that they offered unauthorized fire. The Hebrew can also be read as uh, they offered strange fire. Uh, commentators differ over, uh, they, they discuss, debate a little bit about what exactly did they do wrong. I think the best explanations are one of two, maybe both. Um, the, the first being, it's the wrong fire. You see, the fire for the incense uh, was supposed to come always from the altar in the courtyard. That was the fire that fell from heaven. That was God's fire, the fire that God provided. And so the incense was supposed to be placed on coals that came from the altar where the sacrifices had been made, where God and man had been reconciled. And so it's very possible that they took fire from some other source, thinking any fire, any coals would do. Thus it would be strange fire, unauthorized fire. And that's very possibly what had happened. It's also possible that they took upon themselves privileges that were reserved specifically for the high priest. Yes, they were priests, but they were not the high priest. Aaron was the high priest. 
And there were privileges granted to Aaron alone. Namely, Aaron um, could go into the holy place and offer the, the, the incense on the altar. Aaron, once a year, would go into the most holy place and uh, burn incense there. And so it's possible that they just took to themselves privileges that didn't belong to them. They assumed that they had rights they did not have. Either way, the thing that matters and the thing that the text points out is that they did something which the Lord, quote, had not commanded them. Those are the telling words. They did something the Lord had not commanded them. Now remember last week when we were studying chapter 8, remember the repeated emphasis throughout the chapter that Moses did as the Lord had commanded him. Every bit of the ordination and installation is uh, it's just doing what God had commanded in Exodus chapter 29. Well, that's how it's supposed to work. God speaks and the people do, specifically in terms of worship. You see, God gets to decide how he will be worshipped. God gets to set the terms upon which Israel, a sinful people, will be welcomed into his presence as a holy God. God gets to set the terms. And so whatever the specific nature of the error, the thing that matters is that Nathan and Abihu did something outside of what God had commanded. They decided to improvise. But it's deadly to improvise when God is strictly commanded. And it's specifically dangerous to improvise when it comes to holy worship. This text is foundational for uh, a reformed understanding of, of worship. Uh, you see, there are many people who, who believe that worship, anything in worship is allowed as long as it's not expressly forbidden. So as long as the Bible doesn't say, don't do that, well then it, it's, you know, under the common sense and wisdom of the church leaders, it, it could be fine. So uh, there will be churches where you have uh, dancers dancing and artists painting and uh, churches where you're encouraged to light candles and bow down to icon, icons, all as part of public worship. Well, the Reformed conviction is that God gets to decide how he will be worshipped. And that conviction has been called the regulative principle of worship. It just means that we should uh, only do in worship what God has commanded. I, I just want you to notice in the text that Nadab and Abihu were, were not struck down for doing something God had forbidden. They were struck down for doing something he had not commanded. They improvised. That's what the text says. And so here at Harvest, we try to worship according to what we see in Scripture. Uh, we read the Bible, and we sing, and we pray, we preach, we observe the sacraments, we receive an offering. Those are the things that we see, we see commanded and practiced in the New Testament. However, and this is a really important point, it's important however, particularly for Reformed people. You see, just because you're following the regulatory principle of worship doesn't mean you're truly worshiping. Just because you're doing it right doesn't mean you're doing it in a way that uh, honors God. You see, the most common failure of worship, particularly, I think, in Reformed churches, is not a violation of the regulative principle, as serious as that, as, as that is. The greatest error in worship is the error of presumption, the error of sleepwalking, 
while in the presence of God. The air, you see, that's displayed by Nadab and Abihu. They presumed that since they were priests, since they had been given that privilege, they had certain permission to step outside of the bounds of what God had commanded. They thought their status allowed them to presume on God. I see that presumption in my own life. I see that presumption in the lives of God's people, in good, solid, reformed churches. You see, we can, we can easily assume that since we're good church people, covenant members, theologically, theologically conservative, that, it, that allows for a certain casualness concerning the status of our heart and life before God. And so we, we, we just sort of take to ourselves the assumption that we can live peaceably with ongoing sin in our life, like anger and lust and greed and gossip and spiritual sloth. It just those things don't rise to the level of appropriate urgency. We're good church people. And we, uh, we, we believe good theology. We, um, we go to church, but our, our lackadaisical responses to our sin, our apathy to a, a dying world around us, our lack of humility in our relationships, is, those are just evidences that, that we don't get it. We're not awake. That we're sleepwalking in some sense. We're not awake to the overwhelming reality and glory of God. Though, of all people, we ought to be. We ought to be awake. You see, Nadab and Abihu should have known better. They had no excuses. In Exodus chapter 24, when Moses uh, goes up to the mountain uh, to meet with God... God commands him to bring along the two sons, Aaron and his two eldest sons, Nadab and Abihu. And so they are privileged to go up the mountain. They have a first row seat to the fire and the thunder and the smoke, the overwhelming presence of God. If anyone in Israel should have known what God was really like, it should have been these two. But they allowed their privilege to become presumption. They took for granted the privilege of being near to God. The calling that they had to be God's chosen priests, representatives of God. They became casual with the holy things of God. And it killed them. That's the story. The phrase that we read, fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. The fire came out from before the Lord is exactly the word you read in chapter 9, when the fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering. There it was a sign of God's presence in peace. Here it's a sign of God's presence in judgment. Same God, same fire, different results. Well, what's the explanation? Because you know when, when, when this happened, the immediate response of everyone watching had to be, what, what just happened? Why did this happen? Why did God do this? They recognize immediately the hand of God in this. Why did God do this? You see, from a purely human perspective, it all seems so 
unnecessary. From a human perspective, right, you can imagine standing in the, in the, in the crowd thinking, whatever these men did wrong, surely it did not deserve a response like this. I mean, it's clear they did something, they made some liturgical error. Possibly inadvertently. After all, they're new to this. It's their first day on the job. It might have been just a rookie mistake. But God killed them. Why not a warning? What about their wives, their children? How is this right? How is this just? You see, those are the questions people ask when they face tragedies from a purely human perspective. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't seem appropriate. It doesn't seem right. God is is wrong. And there are people all over in, in our community who are... They hold unbelief in protest. I will not believe in a God who acts that way. You see, the only way to make sense of this is if you're willing to face the reality of God. And that's exactly what Moses does with Aaron. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. You see, from God's perspective, the tragedy of this event is not that two men died. The tragedy is that God himself was despised by the men he had called to represent him. The tragedy is that God, after he has condescended to dwell with his people, a sinful people, after he has made a way for these people to receive his blessing. That God was not honored as holy by His priests. By their action, intended or not, they disregarded the command of God. They sought a relationship with God on their terms, not His. And they dishonored God. And that is the tragedy of the text. That is a grievous injustice that cries out for immediate retribution. God wants Aaron, God wants the people to be awake to the reality of God. Before all the people, I will be glorified. It is as deep a conviction that that there can possibly be in the heart of God. It doesn't go deeper than this. There are not convictions greater than this. I will be glorified. My glory I will not give another. You see, that's the consequence of the, the error of Nathan and, and Abihu, their, their casual oversight, whatever it is. You see, they, they did not glorify God before the people. The men that God had called and ordained specifically to represent him misrepresented him. They made it seem as though it were a small thing to come into the presence of God, to be called to be a priest of God. And that the word of God, the command of God, was somewhat a trifling thing. And so tempting all of Israel to treat God's word lightly, to assume that grace allows disobedience. They treated God as though he were not holy until holiness struck them down. 
Friends, God is jealous for his glory. And that's why Aaron was not allowed to grieve the death of his sons. Verses 6 and 7. Moses says to Aaron and Eleazar and Ithamar, his sons, do not let the hair of your heads hang loose. Do not tear your clothes, lest you die. And wrath come upon all the congregation, but let your brothers, the whole house of Israel, bewail the burning that the Lord has kindled. And do not go outside the tent, the entrance of the tent of meeting, lest you die, for the anointing oil of the Lord is upon you. And they did according to the word of Moses. In other parts of Levitical law, we read that when uh, that priests were not allowed to attend to attend funerals. And the reason is that uh, to come into contact or the presence of, of a, a dead body would be to become unclean and they would then be unable to perform their duties. Israel needs the priests on the job. And so they were not allowed to go to funerals. There was an exception made for immediate family. But that exception is waived in this case. Wenham says the surviving priests, even though they were brothers, had to identify themselves entirely with God's viewpoint and not arouse any suspicion that they condoned their brother's sin. Aaron and his two sons are in a very dangerous place. They're priests of God. And everything within them at that moment would be tempting them to complain against God. It's your son your sons, and they've just been killed by God. It's your brothers. And so Moses makes it very clear that in this very dangerous place, it is essential that Aaron and his sons do not do anything that would suggest that God was in any sense out of line, or had acted inappropriately. In other places in Scripture, lament is allowed. The Israel, the, 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 the congregation, they're allowed to wail. They're, they're allowed to grieve. But Aaron and his sons, being the priests of God, are required to submit entirely and without question to God's holy ways and thus glorify God's name before the people. Their life depended on it. It is a really striking event. Aaron and his sons and the whole congregation have just received a wake-up call from God. I am holy. I will be glorified. And His holiness is a consuming fire. We live, friends, in a cultural soup that abhors this truth and scoffs at it. There are many people in the church who will not accept this version of God. People who will say, I refuse to believe in a God like that. As though what they choose to believe or not to believe makes an iota of difference concerning who God really is and what He's actually like. You can choose whatever you like to choose to believe. Knock yourself out. It doesn't have any effect. None. God is not concerned. He's not moved. He's not changed. By your choice. This is who he is. 
This is what he really is like. You see, Nadab and Abihu didn't believe in a God like that either until the fire fell from heaven. See, friends, this, not just, this isn't just a, a, a dusty story buried in the back pages of the Old Testament. The New Testament church had almost an identical experience as New Testament Christians. It's very interesting. We see these parallels between, between uh, the beginning of Israel as the Old Testament church and the beginning of the New Testament church. Remember uh, Aaron's grievous sin, and yet Aaron's made the, 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 the high priest. We remember Peter's grievous sin, and yet Peter's made a lead apostle. Well, we have a similar thing here. Remember the story of Ananias and Sapphira, Acts chapter 5? After the great triumph the church experienced as the Holy Spirit now is, is at work and moving. People are being converted. The lame beggar is healed. Wonderful, wonderful triumph. And then the tragedy of two people, New Testament priests, because all are priests in the New Testament church, are struck down dead for lying to the Lord and young men come and carry them out and bury them exactly like you read in Leviticus. And we're told in Acts chapter 5, verse 11, and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. People were sensing that this God is a holy God. And you're not to mess with it. Friends, we're dealing with the same God. The God of Leviticus 10, the God of Acts chapter 5, and we're all priests now. You can't say, well, you know, I, I'm not the high priest. No, you're not. You're priests. Just like Nadab and Abihu. In fact, you have privileges and access to God that they could only imagine, they could only dream of. And we have been called, commissioned by God to live our lives in a way that is holy and acceptable, that honors Him. Hebrews 12, 28, the writer says, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Our New Testament God is a consuming fire. And to ignore those passages, to ignore those truths, is to ignore God Himself, no matter how earnestly you profess to believe. One of the things that, that is so dreadful to me and I, I don't mean to beat a horse here. But the Jesus calling books, this God doesn't show up. The whole genre, you don't get this God. Well, that's a problem. It's our culture. These things are written precisely, you see, to wake us up. Wake us up from our sleep. Bring us face to face with the God who really is not the one we prefer. And so it's a wake-up call to you and to me. We are, friends, God's chosen priests. We are ordained by the blood of Christ. We are called by God to honor God as the people of God in every aspect of, your life, of our life. That means that your finances, your entertainment, your sexual life, your work practices, your thoughts, your words, your actions, your family life, it all has holy to the Lord stamped on it, just like Aaron had holy to the Lord stamped on his headband. 
It is all holy to the Lord. And what you do with it matters. We are priests called to bear witness before a watching world to what God is really like, to tell the truth about what He is really like. How are we doing with that? How are we doing with that? If you look at the American church, you see very little that distinguishes the American church from the world itself. Parents, you are called to live before your children in a way that represents to your children what God is really like. Your anger, your flippancy, casualness about the things of God, your thoughtlessness, your selfishness, are not just sins against your kids. You're failing to represent God. You see, it's a lesson for all of us to wake up to things that we just can easily sleepwalk through. What does it mean to live in the presence of God as the people of God? It's a sobering thing, friends, to realize how often and easily we presume on our privileges and sin against grace. And when you begin to wake up to that, the question that you're going to ask is, what should be done to someone like me? And the answer, of course, is what ought to be done is what was done to Nadab and Abihu. That's what ought to be done. You see, they were not put to death because they were worse than us. That's what we want to do. We want to draw a nice line. Here's Nadab and Abihu, really bad people. Line. Here's me. Jesus punched that balloon in Luke chapter 13, didn't he? When he, when he said to uh, the people, you remember the, you hear about the story about the uh, 18 people killed by the Tower of Siloam, fell over, tragedy. 18 people. You think that happened to them because they were worse than you? Let me tell you, unless you repent, you will all experience the judgment of God. So we can't stay here, stand here and say that they... They were put to death because they were worse than us. You see, they were put to death because they're just like us. They're just like us. But you see, where they received justice, God has shown us mercy in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. The fire of God that should have fallen on us has fallen on Jesus. That's the gospel. That's, that's what makes the gospel so precious. For every sin you've committed, sinning against the grace of God, your failure to be the priest of God, your nonchalance, your casualness about holy things, all the reasons multiplied, thousands of reasons why, why God could, should justly open up the, the doors of hell and, and, and send you there. You see, Jesus came specifically, friends, so that the fire of our judgment would fall on him, so that we do not experience the judgment of God that Nadab and Abihu experienced, the judgment that we so richly deserve. You see, until you face the reality of the holiness of God, you just don't get the glory of the gospel. It doesn't really make sense, doesn't resonate. But the wonder of the gospel is that though I am exactly like Nadab and Abihu, there's no condemnation for me. I've sinned worse. You've sinned. We have greater privileges, greater knowledge, greater grace than anything they could possibly know. And yet we do not receive judgment because Jesus received it in our place. And so then the New Testament question, question is, what sort of people then ought we to be? We should be holy people. We should be holy people. 
People who strive for that holiness without which no one will see the Lord. We should be people who pray for deep repentance and deep love in our relationships and deep worship before God. People who truly know their God, love their God, and long for His appearing. People who are quick to confess their sin. People who are quick to forgive others of theirs. People who are waking up to the beauty and the glory and the goodness and the love and the holiness of God and it's changing their life. That's what sort of people we ought to be. May God grant it. Amen. Father, in these words we see your holiness, your justice, your wrath against all that is evil and we see the glory of your love for us in Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, I pray that we would be a people who are quick to confess and eager for holiness. Not to, not to earn, not to merit, but to live, O oh God, in this world, your world, as people who know their God. People who are awake to the beauty of God, the goodness of God. People who hate their sin because it, it's a sin against God. And people who are, Lord, just increasingly having our hearts set on, fixed on the things of God and the kingdom of God. And so that our fear is removed and sins are put to death. And we become robed in love and kindness and compassion as we live in this world as priests, priests unto our God. And so, Lord, I pray you'd give us by your spirit, Lord, wake us up. Give us eyes to see. Give us the ability to respond to all that you are and all of your glory, all of your holiness, all of your grace. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. We're going to respond singing together from Psalm 51. God be merciful to me as we...